0: Hey Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to the DA. and we don't we don't need roads.
1: Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, "Individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blind critics and philosophers of today, but the core of science fiction." essence has become crucial to our salvation tell me how many lights you see ah! Ah!
0: Four lights! so this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause
1: time to take up the garbage
2: Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog.
0: And good evening, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And I am Dave Sellers.
2: And it's fantastic to be back with each one of you here in the diner. And uh, tonight we are continuing our rewatch of the Star Trek pilots talking about their importance, not only tying it into the current, I was going to say Star Wars, Star Trek universe, and... um, and then also the impact the pilot had going forward for the entire show run of, in this case, Voyager. Um, but Miles, my understanding is that uh, you have, uh, you know, somehow harassed into joining us tonight and um, a special guest.
0: Yes, uh, fortunately, we have somebody who could definitely definitely qualified to talk about a Voyager with us. Uh, we have on tonight uh, uh, Mr. Keith DeCandido. He's a prolific writer of Star Trek novels, tie-in novels, as well as his own original work. He's been nominated for two Scribe Awards for his Star Trek work in 2008 for a Q&A and for 2010 for A Singular Destiny. In 2009, he was named a Scribe Grandmaster for his entire body of media tie-in work. We at the Sci-Fi Diner podcast have had the pleasure to see Keith at the Farpoint and Shirley of Conventions down in Maryland for the past 10 years and call him a friend. Uh, Keith has been reviewing the episodes of Voyager on com, a website that is an online magazine and community site that covers science fiction, fantasy, and all the many related subjects that interest us as readers. Currently, Keith is up to season four on Voyager. Keith, uh, welcome and thank you for taking time to talk with us about Caretaker Park 1 and 2 on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Always always happy to chat with you guys. Um, and yes, this is the Voyager is actually the latest rewatch I've done uh, for com. I've been... Um, Covering Star Trek pretty heavily for them for God nine years now.
2: <laughs> um,
1: I started with a Next Generation rewatch, uh, and then I moved on to Deep Space Nine from there, and then I went back to do the original series. Um, and I kept saying I wasn't going to
2: do Voyager. I wasn't going to do Voyager, and then this year I did Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a reason? And, Was there a reason you uh, weren't going to do Voyager?
1: Reasons, which, 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 well, there were there were two re- two primary reasons. Um, one, this is the twenty fifth anniversary of Voyager. Uh, this year. And, um, a lot of people, uh, whose opinion I respect told me I should give Voyager another chance. Most of them were, were women who are younger than me, who grew, who literally grew up with Voyager and, and who grew up with Janeway as one of their role models and one of their favorite pop culture characters. And, Partly, if they're urging, partly because it was the 25th anniversary, and partly because people kept bugging me about it because I'd already done three other shows. Um, <laughs> I finally decided, all right, fine, let's let's give Voyager another shot, and I'm glad I'm doing it. I'm actually really enjoying it. Um, there's there's some of the things I didn't like about the show the first time through are still there, but some of the things there are other things that I am finding and enjoying very much. So um i'm also in addition to the rewatches i've also been reviewing the new episodes of the secret hideout shows as they've come out so i've reviewed every episode of discovery of uh short treks of picard and of lower decks as they've come out and i'm going to keep doing that
2: that's awesome So that's awesome well what's going um, on what's, I'm also, what's going on in your writing world
1: um funny you should mention that um, <laughs> just today Uh, As we record this, I got in my contributors' copies of uh, my latest novel, which is actually a collaboration with David Sherman, called To Hell and Regroup. It's a military science fiction novel. It's the third book in David's 18th Race Trilogy. Um, It's about a human colony world that is invaded by aliens and wiped out. And then the Marines, the Army, and the uh, Navy from the North American Union of the future uh, are sent in to fight back. David wrote the first two books by himself, and I was the one who edited them when they were first published. Uh, for a variety of reasons, he was unable to complete work on the third book, and so he asked me to basically relief pitch. And, and since I had worked on the first two books with him as his editor, he asked me to collaborate with him on the final book. Um, and uh, it's very much his book. I just I just carried the the baton over the finish line for him. <laughs> um, but that's just that's that's coming out November first. Oh, um, I've also got another collaboration, uh, with, uh, Dr. Manish K. Batra, which is a thriller that Manish and I wrote, uh, about a serial killer who targets people who harm animals. Um, it's kind of like Dexter if PETA had created it. And, um, <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> that's coming out in January from Wordfire Press. Um, and I'm also working on the next two books, my fantasy series. There's my, uh, urban fantasy series, uh, The Brahm Gold Adventures. The second book in that uh, is called Feet of Clay, which will be out sometime in 2021. Also, in 2021, will be the next book in my Precinct series, which is my fantasy police procedural series, uh, Phoenix Precinct, which will be the sixth novel in that series. Um, closer to home, or at least home for this podcast, uh, I've been working on some stuff for Star Trek Adventures, the role playing game. Cool. Uh, I wrote I wrote for the Klingon uh, supplement that just came that it's already out electronically, and the physical book will be out soon. Um, and uh, I wrote several chapters for that, and then right now I'm working on an adventure uh, called Incident at Krov Three, uh, which is a, a game which which mostly which takes place actually in the early 24th century, not long after Praxis was destroyed in Star Trek Six. Um, cool. It's it's sort of a post movies adventure uh, cool. featuring a Klingon ship and a Klingon base. Um, and I'm I'm working on that right now. I'm hoping to have that finished. Hopefully, by the time this podcast goes live, it'll be finished.
2: <laughs> oh wow, very good.
1: And uh, and I've got some other stuff. I've got some short stories out. Um, I'm writing stuff for my Patreon and uh, and and a whole bunch of other things. So I'm I'm I am keeping busy. <laughs> yeah,
2: which is good to say during uh, especially during this pandemic because you're in New York, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been a challenge. Um, The uh, the, luckily, people are still buying books, not in quite the same number of quantities. And um, one one of the advantages, a lot of the work I do is through the small press. You know, Talonry Group and the and the fantasy books and the animal are all through uh, small presses. Most of our sales are done um, electronically, anyhow. So it didn't the pandemic didn't affect the ability of people to buy the book we can't hand sell at conventions obviously that that's been taken away from us right. and people aren't going into bookstores which is hurting my more mainstream stuff like my, the alien novel i did last year um but uh, it's been rough but i still people are still publishing books and people are still paying me to write stuff so um and com is still going strong you know i've got i've got three articles a week from them right now between um the two two Voyager rewatches a week and um and the Discovery now the Discovery reviews. I was like I said, I was doing lower decks. And now that Discovery season three has started, I'm doing that. So,
2: so you are a writing machine.
1: I uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> sound like it. I was mean, oiling me occasionally so I don't break down. That's that's right. <laughs> uh,
2: well that's what the lubricant you're drinking's for, right?
1: Right. Right. Yes, lubricant. Right. That's what we'll call it. That's it. <laughs> Uh well it sounds like one of our finest Kentucky sipping lubricant. Yes. Uh, there we go.
2: Well, <laughs> you know, it sounds like there's a lot going on. If people if people who are listening to the podcast wanna find out all about this stuff, where 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 should we send them? Uh
1: the best place to go is my website, which is dekendado.net. I am in the process finally of updating it, but right now it's still pretty crappy. But it's basically um it's a link dump. Uh if you go to decantito.net, it links to my Facebook page, my blog, my Twitter feed, my Instagram account, my articles on tour.com, all the places you can find me online. I'm very active on social media. Uh, my blog is updated regularly. I post on Facebook and Twitter all the freaking time and on Instagram moderately. Um, plus, you know, like I said, three art- at least three articles a week on tour.com. Right. I've been writing other stuff for tour as well. I review things for them and, and write about other stuff. So there's um, – that that's that's the best place to find to to seek me out okay and and if you go to any of the online whatever your online book purveyor of choice is if you just look my name up you'll find my stuff right um you know my tie-in works like miles said i've written a ton of tie-in stuff from not just star trek but supernatural uh alien um resident evil uh i'm forgetting them all now uh i did a dungeons and dragons book a while back um i've done buffy the vampire slayer farscape andromeda serenity Serenity, yes, I did the Serenity novelization back in 05. Uh, Marvel, I've written some novels based on Marvel comics, all sorts of stuff, so, right. as well as my original work. So I'm easy to find. Yeah. And there's nobody else in the world named Keith DeCandido, as far as I can tell. So you won't mix me up with anybody else.
2: Oh, so very good. Very good. From the, So I did have a question. That, what
1: happens when you, when, when you mix a, a Gaelic first name with an Italian last name?
2: No, there um, you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did have a question for you based on something you just mentioned. You mentioned you're in all sorts of social Keith. media. And you're pretty active on that. How do you balance that with your writing? Because for me, social media can it be can a be big a, distraction.
1: It can be, um, particularly right now when um, one can't help but look at the news, even as one is screaming in agony as one reads it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 not always easy. Um. It's both convenient and frustrating that you do it all on the same machine anyway. You're just all tabbing over from one to the other. Um, it, it can be distracting, but it can also, sometimes it's a way if, if you're stuck on something, you can just sort of pop over to Facebook for a second, just read a few things, just to sort your brain out. Um, it's not always easy, uh, especially, like I said, uh, this year in particular, it's, it's been hard to, to find that balance. But... Um, but, you know, they, they don't pay me if I don't finish the work. So that's right. a pretty good incentive. So that <laughs> that, that, that is a good incentive.
2: Um, yeah. And uh, you still doing uh, karate?
1: Yes. Um, when when the lockdown first started, my dojo went completely virtual. Um, doing classes over Zoom um, with everybody in their living rooms training. Um in around mid July, the dojo reopened to a limited capacity, but he's still, we're still doing hybrid classes. So you can do it. You can either go into the dojo or continue to do it over Zoom. That's awesome, uh, and that's worked out very well. Um, this way, you know people people who don't like to train online uh, can can actually do it in person. And if you don't feel comfortable getting into a, you know into a space with a bunch of everybody's wearing masks in the dojo at the very least. Right. So, um, and we're, and we're trying to, to keep everybody distant from each other. So, but Eddie's also limiting the number of people who take a class at any given time. Um, so we're, we're, we're making it work. Um, so yeah, I've been able to keep doing that. I haven't been teaching. Um, cause that, that was an after school program. And I, I, that's not, that's not something that's really particularly safe right now. Right. Um, so I just, I don't feel comfortable, you know, getting into a small room with a bunch of kids, who may or may not keep their mouths on. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, I, no, I'm with you there. <laughs> That's a teacher. But, um, all right. Well, uh, Miles, why don't we go ahead and uh, transition into uh, talking a little bit about Voyager. Do you want to briefly introduce the episodes for listeners that may be tuning in that may not have rewatched Voyager recently? We'll allow you to give a kind of introduction, and then we'll just uh, go from there.
0: Sure. So the newly commissioned Starship Voyager and Maquis Raider are flung into the far reaches of the remote Delta Quadrant by a powerful entity known as a caretaker. Star Trek Voyager is the fifth Star Trek series. It was created by Rick Berman, Michael Piller, and Jerry Taylor, and ran on UPN as the network's first ever series for seven seasons in the USA from nineteen ninety-five to two thousand and one. In some areas, without local access to UPN. It was offered to independent stations through Paramount Pictures for its first six seasons. The series is best known for its uh, familial crew, science fiction-based plots, engaging action sequences, and light humor. The writers often noted that many episodes had underlying themes and messages or metaphors for current social issues. This is the first Star Trek series to feature a female captain in the main cast. However, Catherine January is not the first female captain. Additionally, the show gained in popularity for its storylines, which frequently featured the Borg. Voyager follows the events of Star Trek: Next Generation, and ran, ran alongside Star Trek: New Space Nine during its uh, first five seasons.
2: Very good. Where do you want to? Where do you guys want to start?
0: I remember when it first came on. At first, I was worried I wouldn't be able to see it because UPN wasn't everywhere. It was. Um, you almost had it. Wasn't available on cable yet. You had to get it through satellite, and so I just remember at first can we even get the show? But then I think our NBC affiliate uh, air, aired it, um, aired it that night. So I was able to catch it and record it on these things called uh, VHS tapes. So I'd have it for posterity for a while. Um, that's, and then, and then the NBC affiliate would um, air the show, but at weird, a weird time, like Sunday night from 1130 to 1230.
2: That's how I learned how to program a BCR. Oh, there you go. There you go. Dave, did you uh, see it when it came out live?
3: Kind of, kind of, um, much is the same problem with miles, UPN didn't exist over here. And through the majority of the first season, I had to get my uncle who lived about an hour away and got the channel. He recorded all the episodes for me. And the couple times a year when we actually saw them, he'd hand over a box of tapes (laughs) (laughs) so that I'd get to watch it. And then come second season, it was actually, it was on a, we found out there was one down here. I mean, that was back what ninety five. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 95. I was I was quite young at that point still, um, until I figured out how to, you know, actually read a TV guide properly and got my dad to get cable for fifteen dollars a month, which he threw a fit over. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God he's not alive now. <laughs> that's right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> not the truth? Uh, yeah, but, well, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, for me, I, did, I didn't watch it till I got the Netflix DVDs sent to me. So that tells you that they don't, I like that was 10, 15 years ago that I that I watched so I did not watch it live. And Keith, did you watch it as it was coming out?
1: Yep. Um, it was funny. Um, uh, the, the local station, uh, New York had like four or five independent stations in addition to the three network stations. Um, one of them became uh, the Fox network affiliate in the mid eighties. And then um, the other, uh, there were two other independent stations, one of which uh, was the one that always broadcast Star Trek. They were the ones who ran the reruns of the original series back in the seventies, all the way through into the eighties. And then when next generation debuted, they were the ones who ran it in first run syndication, that same channel. And then they also ran deep space nine. But then once when, when 1995 hit and not only uh, UPN, but also the WB debuted, in January of 1995, uh, Channel 11 turned out to be the WB affiliate and Channel 9 was the UPN affiliate, which meant that Deep Space Nine and Voyager were on two different stations. So you and, couldn't miss it. <laughs> well, well, what was funny was it, it didn't affect the initial run, but the uh, – because um, they're both, – both Next Gen and Deep Space Nine were aired on the weekends here on a Saturday nights, uh, and Voyager aired midweek. But um, they would rerun Voyager over the weekend, also. And for a while there, they were running at the same time. They were running opposite each other, uh, against each other. Seven <laughs> o'clock on Saturday night, you could either watch DS9 or watch me. Wow! Uh, but yeah, no, I did. I did watch. Uh, I watched them both. Uh, I watched. I watched it as it came out on 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 our on our UPN affiliate back when that was a thing. So
2: yeah. So. You know, one of the things that we've looked at in the Sci-Fi Diner as we've explored these pilots is um, going back to rewatch this pilot. Uh, how how is it held together um, visiting it now? You know, we're now 25 years later um, that we visited this, the the, the 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 pilot here. How is it held together over time? Um and then somewhere in there, we're going to eventually talk about the impact it had maybe on the show moving forward, uh, the Star Trek universe uh, moving forward and uh, as we go forward. So I don't care who wants to start here. Keith, do you want to talk a little bit I about
1: it, that? I think it did a good job of the main job of a pilot is to introduce the premise of the show and introduce the characters. And I think it did a good job of that. It it set up the situation nicely. Um, it introduced all the main characters pretty well. The, um, uh, everybody had at least one good moment, uh, in the main cast, uh, and yeah, some more than others, but, um, but it did a pretty good job of showing us who these people were and, and, and what their situation was going to be going forward. Um, the, the, and, you know, it set them up with them being stuck, you know, basically they, they they sacrificed their ability to get home in order to save the Ocampa, which is a very Star Trek thing. Um, and it also set up something that wound up not really mattering all that much, which was the fact that this was supposed to be a mixed crew. We can get into that more later, but right. um, at the very least, uh, for the purposes of Caretaker itself, it introduced mm-hmm. the conflict that was supposed to be. I mean, the Maquis was specifically created to Service Voyager. The only reason the Maquis existed was in order to set Voyager up. Right. Um, and, and they set aside, you know, three episodes of Deep Space Nine and two episodes of Next Generation for the express purpose of setting Voyager up with the Maquis. And um, and at the very least, this episode did a good job with it. Um, you know, we had Chakotay and B'Elanna, uh, mm-hmm. and we fought Tuvok, except he turned out to be, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you had the conflict there. You had... Um, Torres with her seat of the pants engineering, and you you had you know Chakotay running away from Golovek at the beginning, um, and you know you had Paris who who was sort of the bad boy of the whole thing. Um, it so so it, it it did that nicely. I thought it it, right. it got the it got the show going and introduced the characters well.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, as you're talking, I was thinking you know many times pilots in a traditional TV show. Pilots are done to sell the show. Um, but in Voyager, being it we're in an established, you know, Star Trek universe, um, was Voyage? does anyone know, maybe Keith, you know, was the pilot for Voyager done to sell the show or did they already commit to the show by the time the pilot aired? Oh,
1: God, no, that was, they were, they were completely committed to it. This was, this was what they were using to launch their new network. Right. Yeah. No. You know, this was, this was. You know, the pilot was there purely for introductory purposes for the for the reader, for the viewer rather. There was never any question that it was going to happen. Right. Um, they were they built their entire network around this show. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, so it makes it. And it, it was is,
1: the only show that survived the first scene. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, oh, that's true. That's true. I didn't think about it that way. You know, but I, I you know, you're right. I, I think many times pilots are vying two purposes to sell the show. And also to introduce the audience to what the show is about, but in this time they had the luxury of just doing the second and not having to worry about oh, yeah. selling it. so yeah. um, miles, how about you? Uh, going back and re-watching Voyager? Uh, what was it like to revisit this the, this, this double pi- this two episode pilot? you know I don't know how, I, don't, I don't know when the last time was you watched it, but how did it feel going back to this?
0: A lot of fun. Uh, I watched it twice before we did this show. Not tonight, but um, you know, over the last two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I watched it watched it twice. But um He's I love the opening. It right it's kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um
2: no. but
0: um... <laughs> <laughs> it's pause now. But um, I love the opening montage. It's got a kind of a Star Wars feel, just the the, the text on the screen just kind of introduce you what, what the situation is, maybe. G- gave it more of an epic feel, I thought. And maybe, I guess it was also maybe for the benefits of maybe the, f- the few people who didn't watch Star Trek well, decided to chime in and watch it. So I thought I, I liked the montage. I thought the battle scene between the Maquis ship and, and the Cardassian ship was great. I Maybe some people would say special effects-wise it doesn't hold up. I, I thought it did. I thought it looked great. Um. What I also remember is this show had it had a different uh, actress cast as the captain, and she yes. only lasted one day. <laughs> and I'm going to butcher her her, her name. It's I think she's French Canadian or Jeanne Boujol. Thank you. Uh, but you could go on YouTube and watch the film scenes. I've I've went back and watched uh, some of them, and you know. I mean, I'm sorry she she up and quit the show, but I think Kate Mulgrew was a better choice for the role of Janeway. I just think, um, I, I I think, I don't know. There's just something subdued about the, the other actress who, who played her. And um, and I, I hate to say this, this is not meant to sound crass, but Kate Mulgrew is just a little more easier on the eye too. And so I think that might have helped too. You, you had a, he had, a, he, had a, he had a more attractive woman play the captain. Um, so, but yeah, no, I, th- I think the pilot, like he said, I echo everything he just said. It, we we, the, we got a good introduction to all the characters. We didn't see the doctor as much, but I think every scene we saw him in, we could see already the kind of character he was going to be. He adds so much of himself to the, to the character that uh, we knew he was going to be something special early on.
2: Yeah, like Picardo, but mm-hmm. Dave, how about you? Uh, your experience of revisiting this pilot?
3: Well, it was good that I, I I just finished a full rewatch of the entire series. I guess maybe the end of last week. Um, it, 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 it was. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, I, it I wasn't writing an article for each episode. Oh well, yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you guys all said it. I mean, it, it did set up the characters really well. Um, it was nice to see him bring back Nicholas Locarno, um <laughs> in, in his role. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's still, there, there's a lot of it for a few cents. The older I got, I mean, the more, I, I should say this. Much is the same as you, Keith, me watching it through again. This is maybe the third, the second actual rewatch I've done of the show. And despite all the problems I have with it and still have with it and will go to my deathbed with, um, it, it was, it was, it's been much better every time I've watched it. I've gotten to see a little bit more actually really seeing a lot of the growth in some of the characters that i never really picked up on before I mean I was 18 when the show ended so at that point my only real concern was seven nine but uh, <laughs> <laughs> which my brother actually my brother the best man at my wedding actually brought her up in his speech at our reception which was <laughs> absolutely hilarious <laughs> but uh, but yeah I mean it, it, it set up for for another very trek
0: star trek series
2: hmm. it's funny question that... for keith go ahead
0: yeah the, the nick Lacarno character was the reason why they didn't just have him be nick Lacarno was it they would they would have to pay a royalty fee to the
1: writer I, that's, that if... that's one of the stories i don't know for sure nobody really knows okay. for sure that's one of the theories that that every if they use nick locarno they'd have to pay ron more every time an episode aired uh whereas if they created a new character they didn't um because of the WGA rules, that the, the the public reason was that well, Nick Lacarno was too irredeemable, which is nonsense. Um, it, I also don't. It, it also makes no sense that they cast Alexander Enberg as a young Vulcan engineer with a similar sounding name, but it wasn't the same character. Right? It was Boric instead of Torek, which which they said was because they didn't want another Vulcan with a T in his first name. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, I I don't know. Um, I think, I think it would have been more interesting if it had been Locarno, um, just because we already had that. Um, we already had that, uh, that hit as it were. Um, and, and we already had some investment in that character. Um, I, as it is one of my biggest issues with caretaker, not my biggest, I have one really big issue with caretaker. One of my biggest issues is it.
0: Usually in a Star Trek pilot, the
1: captain character, um, the the lead, is the person who goes on a journey in the pilot. This is true, or the lead character. This is true in um, where no man has gone before. Really, because that's about Kirk and his relationship with Mitchell. Um, uh, Encounter at Farpoint is very much about Picard. Well, both Picard and Riker really are. You know, Riker learning about the ship, and Picard, you know, defending humanity. Um, Emissary was all about Cisco. God knows. Um, yeah. and and after this, uh, uh, Broken Bow was very much about Archer. Um, uh, Discovery's two part pilot was very much about Michael Burnham, and Picard's pilot was very much about Picard. All of them were very much, you know, the, the central character, the central POV character in all of those was one of the stars. The exception is Voyager, the, the only one with a female lead before Discovery, anyway. And that really kind of bugged me, that, that the, the point of view character and the person who's going on a journey in the pilot episode is the frickin' pilot. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's you know, the annoying dude bro caricature uh, played, you know, and I, this is nothing against Robert Duncan McNeil, who did the best he could with the role. Um, and and But Paris is, is a slimy creep. Um, and one of my biggest issues in this rewatch in particular that I've been doing is that the show keeps coming back to him, and I don't think it's a coincidence that they keep winding up focusing on him to a much greater extent than any equivalent character in any of the other shows. As a perfect example, um, uh, Anthony Montgomery's character in Enterprise, who was practically, you know, may as well have not been there for all they did with him. Um, And also that Tom Paris is also the only white male in the cast, um, aside from Robert aside from uh, Robert Picardo, um, and and that just it just bugged me that that Paris kept getting focus focal stuff that should have gone to Janeway or Chakotay as the two leads, and instead they would give those those beats to Paris, and that the pilot episode was really Paris's journey, and I didn't care about Paris, I you know, I the 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 show was way more invested in his redemption than I ever was. Um, and it particularly bugged me there. It got better as the show went on. In particular, I like his relationship with with Torres. I think that that's being really. I'm I'm in the, I'm in the middle of that right now. Um, in my rewatch is is uh, the development of the Torres Paris relationship, which is actually working quite well for me. Um, and and they're doing a good job with that. But prior to that,
0: Paris, I just wanted to smack Paris. most of the time. <laughs> Oh, that one scene in the shuttle with with that with that female pilot—I just like, dude, study, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just like uh, somebody call HR now. I mean, just uh,
2: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: personal space, yeah. there, buddy.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, so.
1: Well, she was a beta, Betazoid. so don't do personal space. So that part probably didn't bother her. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <nah>.
2: <laughs> Uh, well, you know, but even
1: so, he was being spectacularly creepy in that scene. Yeah. Yes.
2: yes. Well, you you mentioned this the the focus on um, on Tom Paris. Any explanation as to why that happened in the pilot, or do we know why they showed they had this they had this great opportunity to do something that Star Trek has always been about pushing the boundaries? Why pass up the opportunity and focus on some white guy in this pilot? when you have the opportunity to showcase someone else or someone of a different gender
1: You'd have, i don't know
2: yeah have it
1: yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. um and they even they even went so far as to give him the middle name Eugene so it's like oh look we're tribute we're doing a tribute to Roddenberry. Mm. <laughs> um i don't know yeah. it's, it's
2: it's
1: it's it's an uncon- i think it was i don't think it was deliberate i think it was just an unconscious bias that you you still see i still do it when i write Um, and it's something I try to avoid. Um, I mean, I'm a heterosexual white guy and I'm sick of heterosexual white guys at this point. Um, and, and I'm, I've been making an effort to, to not default to that, but it's not that easy for everybody, you know, for for a long time, you know, popular culture has always assumed that no matter who your supporting characters are, your main character is going to be a white dude. Um, and you know, most, most science fiction, Star Trek has actually been much better than most. Um, you know, at least you have, you have, um, you know, you have leads where people of color in, in Deep Space Nine and now in Discovery as well, um, which is vanishingly rare. Even, even shows that have a female lead, it's usually a white female lead. Um, that's changing throughout television. And I think it's a good thing. Um, I, I much, I much prefer my fiction to be more representative of all of humanity. Uh, but you know, 25 years ago it was, it was, it was a harder, it was a harder habit to break for a lot of the writers. You know, I don't really, I can't really fault them for it entirely because there's so many cultural biases pointing in that direction. That doesn't make it any easier to watch 25 years later either. Like I said, I just, I spent, I was watching caretaker, mostly wanting to smack Tom Paris. (laughs) um, and wanting to spend more time with the more interesting characters like Tuvok or, 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 or Chakotay. I love Tuvok. Tuvok, Tuvok is probably my favorite character on the show. Um, because and and this uh, uh, still every time i watch caretaker for 25 years now always lose it whenever um when tuvok welcomes Neelix on board and he says i can take you to your quarters you could take a bath and just the way he delivered that (laughs) line was so perfect i mean he 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 almost out Leonard Nimoy Leonard Nimoy in that in that delivery <laughs> right um, yeah he and, was and funny he just, without trying yeah and and he really just nailed that Vulcan snottiness that <laughs> and dry wit that that Nimoy did so well 50, 55 years ago um and yeah and, and far, I mean far too many times when people would play Vulcans they would play them as emotionless which is wrong they're they're The whole thing is that they suppress their emotions. They're actually incredibly emotional and they hold it in. Right. Um, And, and Tim Russ just nailed it. I just, um, uh, as we record this, the the day we recorded the the recording this, the episode that I did was uh, one called scientific method, which was uh, one in which uh, aliens were experimenting on the crew without their knowledge. And at one point Janeway just goes on this epic rant about how you know there's no discipline and people are slacking off, and you know talk to the department heads and make them understand that they should do this. And Tuvok just looks at her and says, "Shall I flog them as well?" <laughs> <laughs> and Janeway immediately realizes that she's acting like an idiot, and and but just he nailed that so well. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, watching w- watching it 25 years ago and again watching it in January when I when I started my rewatch, I was again impressed with with how well tim russ really nailed his character right and and his role as sort of the the experienced elder statesman of the crew and his mentor he's a mentor to Kess. he's um and many and he's he's janeway's primary confidant um he and paris developed this hilarious banter as the show goes on um he's a really a, a really valuable and you know, he and seven of nine also form a, a, a interesting bond as, as the show goes on as well um and I, I really think he was one of the breakout one of the breakout characters of the show, and I don't think he gets enough credit for it because um, Seven of Nine and, and the EMH tend to suck all the air out of the room when you start talking about breakout characters. But um,
0: but Russ was phenomenal, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I agree.
0: That to piggyback on what you said, Keith, when he goes back into Neelix's quarters and Neelix asks, "So will the replicator make me a uniform like yours?" and uh, Tuvok says, "No." And most certainly not. <laughs> that was just, yeah, I, I, I laughed real hard yeah. at that again. Yeah. Well,
2: you know, Keith, you're you mentioning how hard it is, you know, 25 years later. It's always, I think, one of the difficulties is looking at any of these shows is you look at it through modern sensibilities, oh, and you uh, and you have to remind yourself that when this came out, this was modern sensibilities back in that time, and, yeah. you know, this is part of this is a good thing about culture. The fact that we're evolving, we're trying to become better. I mean, this is really kind of the star Trek way. If we're trying, if we're honest where we're trying to improve ourselves and become better as individuals. And so, you know, that's a signpost in the past of who we were. And, uh, and we can look at it and say, thank God we're not there anymore. That we can produce star Trek. That is more ethnically diverse and has central characters that are ethnically diverse. And, uh, you know, with different genders and everything, it's just, and so I think that's not a bad thing, but it is certainly it does make it difficult. We've I know we've talked about it with some of and our Voyager other pilots as well.
1: Voyager. Yeah, Voyager was a huge step in the right direction, certainly. Um, and and I like that Janeway had her own command style, which you saw in the pilot. You know, she her it's it she she the, the most important thing for any anybody who's supposed to be and in particular in Star Trek, somebody who's supposed to be the captain of a starship or the captain commander of a space station, whatever, somebody who is leading a group of people, is that they have to have a certain charisma that makes you believe that people will follow them. Um, One of the things that I think all of the captain characters on all of the Star Treks have had is that charisma. Um, You know, God knows William Shatner had it in spades. Patrick Stewart had it in a completely different way. It was much more um, calm and almost... Like, Jim Kirk was your drinking buddy. You know, that, that was also your boss. Um, whereas, you know, Jean-Luc Picard was, I mean, Jean-Luc Picard's one of those people, as soon as he walks into the room, even though he's only like five foot nine, he's, he seems to be the tallest person in the room. And he immediately has that commanding presence. Um, Sisko was sort of halfway between Picard and Kirk in that regard, you know. And and then Janeway was the same, the same way, except instead of, I always thought of Janeway as being like, your, your Italian aunt who always like feeds everybody when they come over, but also doesn't take any crap from anybody at the same time. <laughs> um, and, and, and Mulder played that perfectly. Yeah. You know, and you see that in the later shows also, you know, Archer had that charisma. Um, all three, ca- all got four captains that we've seen on discovery at this point. Um, Georgiou, Saru, Pike, and Lorca all had that as well. Um, and, and it's really, that's an important aspect that you really need to have if you're going to, if you're going to be convincing as a leader of people, um, you have to have that charisma. And, and Kate Mulgrew absolutely had it from, mm. from jump, you know, from the moment we first saw her approaching Paris in the New Zealand colony all the way through to when she makes the decision to save the Ocampo rather than save themselves. Um, yeah. Which they probably couldn't do anyway. I mean, one thing I had forgotten that, that, that I didn't realize until I rewatched this was that it was actually set up in such a way they couldn't get home anyhow. There was uh, the Tuvok said in order to recalibrate the array to send them back would have taken hours. The Kazon weren't going to give them those hours. They were firing Mm -hmm. them. Right. There was really no way to get back, Uh, and they had to keep that technology out of the Kazon's hands because the Kazon's are, you know, biker dudes basically.
2: (laughs) (laughs) True. True. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that this was that focusing on Paris is one of the biggest issues. What was? dare I ask the biggest issue you had with the pilot?
1: Okay. There were two others. One, they, they <laughs> at least ignored after that, which is the idea that water is scarce. Water's freaking everywhere. You shave off a comet and melt it. You've got water. Um, the, the, they abandoned that at least um, after the first episode, the, the, somebody explained science to them at some point. Um, But, or at least that part of science. There's other parts of science that never got explained to them, but that's a whole other rant. Um, But no, my biggest issue with with Caretaker, um, and and it's it's not just an issue with Voyager, it's an issue that is endemic to dramatic fiction, and it's one that is slowly getting better, but it's still one that pisses me off every time I see it, which is when death is treated cavalierly, and the characters act as if they know who has billing. If there was a Star Trek The Next Generation episode in which Riker, LaForge, Crusher, Roe, and Ogawa were all killed, it would be devastating. It would absolutely be like one of the worst things that ever happened. And they'd be talking about it for ages. And yet the equivalent to those characters are all killed in Caretaker. And by the second hour of the episode, nobody even remembers they exist. Hmm. And that bugged me constantly Hmm. that, you know, Janeway, it was her first officer for crying out loud. The entire medical staff, the chief engineer, who never even got a frickin' name. Um, and the pilot. And because they weren't listed in the opening credits, nobody cared about them. Um, my own personal way of addressing this to some extent was in some of the fiction I wrote. Um, there was a, in 2005. Uh, Simon so and interested in an anthology called Distant Shores, which was done for the 10th anniversary of Voyager's release. And we did stories from throughout the run of the show. And the story I did was about the people left behind. The point of view character was Mark Jameson, Mark Johnson, um, Janeway's fiance, uh, the one who was taking care of her dog while she was going to the Badlands for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, he was the point of view character. And I, I showed the journey because we found out later that he finally gave up on her coming home and found, met somebody else and married her. Um so I, I that was the main part of it was that journey. But one of the things I also did was one of the characters in the in the thing was the son of the chief engineer. Um and the girlfriend of the first officer. And and also we saw like Tuvok's family and um and a few other people. Um oh and and the the another one of the main characters was uh Samantha Wildman's um husband. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh he's he basically starts a thing where on the one year anniversary of when they disappeared, gathering the family of, of all of Voyager's crew together. Hmm. Um to because to, they they're still considered missing. Um and uh and so I use I, I did that and I because I wanted to at least remember that, you know, Stadi and um Cavett, the first officer and the medical staff and the chief engineer and all these other people who died in the pilot were were still important people to somebody. Um and that it always bugged me that they were just completely forgotten about by the second hour of caretaker and never mentioned again for seven years. And that just, it, it, it always stuck in my craw. Hmm. And I, I, admit that is a personal pet peeve. And I, and I freely admit that it, that is not just Voyager that does that. You see that on television and in movies all the time. Right. If a character doesn't have billing, their death doesn't matter as much, which is why I appreciate it when people don't do that. Um, one of the things i particularly loved in the second season of discovery was when arium was killed arium wasn't that an important a character to the viewers she was just you know one of the one of the people on the bridge who had three lines but she was important to the crew mm-hmm. and so her death mattered to the crew even if it didn't matter as much to the viewer and they they showed that and they they and it and it just felt more real it felt it made it made the relationships among the characters feel more like real relationships and not just you know the seven people in the opening
0: with a bunch of extras wandering around that nobody cares about. Right, right. I I also remember that when they were promoting the show, they were already talking about um, the people that would become the the replacements for these characters. We we found out Jacoté would be the first officer, Torres would be the chief engineer, um, uh, Picardo was playing the holographic doctor, so we kind of knew ahead of time that we weren't going we we should get used to these people. They were not you know, they weren't going to be around too long. Right. Yeah, but they still should have mattered to the to the crew, you know? Right. Well, I agree. I, I agree 100% yeah. with you. I'm just saying yeah. they kind of did a disservice in some way by by telling us ahead of time these people are going to be in these roles and then we see these other people in these roles and it's like, "Oh, he's not going he or she's not going to last too long." So Well, they
1: also told us ahead of time that the show would be about the conflict between the Starfleet and Maki crew, which never happened.
0: Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. So they set up that some, wasn't
1: caretaker's fault. Yeah.
2: So they so, so they set up that conflict and then didn't really deliver on it, is what you're saying in the series. Not
1: even a, a little bit. It was just like like an episode here, an episode there, and that was it. And and there, were, it's funny, I, I noticed rewatching the first season. There were a couple of occasions where there was there was conflict. Among the crew, particularly in Prime Factors, when they thought they might have a way to get closer to home, and they were thinking about stealing the technology. But the thing is, that wasn't that wasn't a Starfleet Maquis thing. That was a we want to go home thing that had nothing mm-hmm. to do with whether you were Starfleet or Maquis. In fact, Joe Carey and uh, Book Torres and Seska were all on the same side of that. Um, and and you know, there really wasn't they really didn't go anywhere with with that conflict. It was it was incredibly disappointing.
0: I was thinking about that too. We we didn't necessarily have to see a mutiny of the week, but we could see maybe Chakotay and Janeway argue more, uh, or or have just maybe some arguments about why why the Maquis are doing what they're doing. Why is the Federation sticking up for our colonies? We could have seen a little of that. It didn't have to be a mutiny every every week, but even
1: even conflict like we got it, like in Scorpion when when they both disagreed on how to deal with the war. Mm-hmm. that sort of thing. You know, there could have been more of that, right? Which didn't even happen, and and there could have been more just conflict between you know the the Federation way of doing the Starfleet way of doing things versus the Maquis way of doing things. Considering that Voyager was in a much more Maquis-like situation, and that they were on their own without any support, again, with hostile for, with potentially hostile forces all around them, that would call for more Maquis-type tactics than Starfleet-type tactics. And it never they never did that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a blown opportunity. Right. And back to what you were saying about those. The
3: deaths of the characters in, in in the in the pilot. I just did a little quick research, and throughout the seven seasons of that show, forty nine crewmen either died or or left went missing. Yeah, out of a hundred and forty something, one hundred forty five. There were there were about 150 and fifty, one hundred fifty-ish five when they left the Ocampa homeworld. Yeah. yeah, and yet. like you're saying, despite that, if I'm with a bunch of people and, and what a third of my crew over the time dies, my morale is not going to be anywhere (laughs) near what this is going to be, especially with the, and one of my biggest issues with this series is the state of that ship. You know, Year, the the episode Year of Hell. <laughs> was yes. one of my favorite because that is the way that ship should have looked at Endgame at the end of season seven. For all the yeah. crap you took, no starbase, no resources, fabrications to do that. How do you still have a single photon torpedo left? You know, and but no, it's it's showing up sparkly and clean like it just left space dock. Uh, th- well, those were all the- expensive. Yeah, Oh, well, yeah, and, but th- those were the things that really irritated me about this show yeah. altogether. Where, where it was the was all of that, and the fact that they took Trekno Babble to a whole new level. <laughs> that
1: it, it, yeah, it just yeah. became outrageous at some points. It was especially for us. It, it once it became clear that they weren't going to be doing really consequences like ever. Um, (laughs) it was frustrating when they would then do things that should have had consequences. The show really is at its best when it, when it finds a story that it can tell in an hour and be done with it. Those, those have been the best episodes are the ones where, you know, the story is contained in those 42 minutes. Um, when, when it's not, when it's something like when they suffer catastrophic damage and then they're perfect the next week. Like, they suffered catastrophic damage, there's only one place they can get repairs, and they were ambushed there, so they can't use that now. How the hell do they fix that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, they have replicators, and yes, they have matter-antimatter power. That can cover a lot, but there's a certain – there are limits when you don't have a repair facility of any sort. There should have been, you know, little modifications made to it here and there, little doodads being added on, you know, whole breaches that never got entirely fixed, you know. Um, or patched over with, like, different color metal or something. Um, It should look like your crazy uncle, your crazy West Virginian uncle's cabin. (laughs) The next two episodes I'm doing are going to be Year of Hell, and I'm really both looking forward to and dreading it.
3: Uh, (laughs)
1: Because I'm right there with you. I remember when the episode aired, and I'm thinking, this is what they should have been doing all along. What the hell? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And... Now, do you think that um, was because of, like you said, Keith, I mean, they had a model, so CG, the ship wasn't CGI, at least for the no, first. No, So, I mean, they so they they couldn't bash up the model, like, you know, they, they're <laughs> well, limited. And, and, they I, and I get that. There are, the, the, mm-hmm. there are production limitations on that, but
1: they at least could have given lip service to it, you know? Right, even right. The, even if the external repairs were all pristine, the internal repairs shouldn't have been, you know? If you've suffered catastrophic warp damage, be stuck in impulse for the next three episodes, and you can still have adventures. You know, mm-hmm. you know. Just mention it at the beginning we're still working on the warp drive. You know, whatever. Right. Just give right. some idea that that, that the, the biggest the biggest problem was that they never entirely embraced the premise. Um, not that they were stuck far away from home. Not that there was a combination Starfleet and Maquis crew. Um. And it's honestly been easier to watch it this time because I knew going in that they weren't going to embrace their premise. And once you know that you can forgive it a little more. (laughs) Um, It didn't, it didn't help. And and I recognize that this is an issue. The first five seasons of Voyager were airing at the same time as the final five seasons of deep space nine. And yeah, the, and the third season of deep space nine was in the middle of the third season DS9 when Voyager premiered. And that's a tough act to follow um the the ds9 was just such a good show and and was doing such wonderful things and was doing consequential things at the same time that voyager was just sort of doing planet of the week episodes and it was really hard it was harder to be invested in when you were watching both at the same time because ds9 was doing things that voyager should have been doing they couldn't for a lot of reasons not the least of which is the fact that ds9 was a syndicated show that was it wasn't really blazing any trails, it was just basically filling in the ground that TNG had already filled in. But Voyager needed to be the vanguard of a new network and it needed to be successful, which meant they had to play a lot of things safe. Mm, Because it was it was, you know, if it failed the whole network failed. Um and it's I don't think it's a coincidence that the end of the, the what killed UPN and forced it to merge with the WB to form the CW was when it no longer had a Star Trek show on the air it was 2006 the year after enterprise went off the air that 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 UPN pretty much got folded into into the WB and that' was it. Um, it 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 was it was it was the vanguard of their shiny new network
2: right, right.
1: Um, so they couldn't really they didn't want to mess around too much and take a chance on alienating so they, so
0: they played it safe. And it was the wrong premise for that. Right. Yeah, I will say, though, it, it did observe a Star Trek tradition as far as um, kind of being grounded in what came before. I mean, we see Voyager docked on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. We see a fun interaction between Quark and, and Harry Kim. And, uh, I love Harry. that scene so much. Yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great scene. Quark is awesome in that, and, and I just and I love the way it was structured. With they
1: told us about Ferengi at the academy, yeah. and then Quark goes into the whole litany about you know racial stereotyping and all this, that, and the other thing. And then Paris comes in and saves his ass, and then he walks around and says, "Didn't they tell you about Ferengi at the academy?" <laughs> beautifully done, absolutely yes. beautifully done, and, <laughs> and, and nobody, nobody ever went wrong putting Armin shimmerman in, in general, and Quark in particular in any scene anywhere. Yeah.
0: Um, the worst you know, he gets is I, good.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I'm 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 waiting for them to bring him and have him show up on Picard. It just it needs to happen. Oh yeah, oh, oh definitely. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that would be great.
1: Yes, we already know. We we already he was mentioned in one episode, and we saw a Quarks bar on on um that Vegas planet they went to. Right. Um. He's obviously franchised the bar. So. <laughs> right. So the, the next obvious step is to have him show up. Of course. But yeah, that was that was a nice touch, and and. And it, it, it's still, you know, I mean, we saw it in the, in the pilot in particular, and, and in general, they still mostly held to the Star Trek ideals of, of being compassionate, of, of helping people rather than trying to hurt them. Um, you know, I like the fact that, that, yes, they were stranded far from home, but they did it they did it in order to save people from having their planet ravaged by, you know, space biker dudes. Um it. we constantly see them putting themselves on the line to help people they've only just met. Um. The, I remember uh, one of my favorite episodes was uh, Dreadnought, the one where uh, they find this missile that, that Torres, this Cardassian missile that Torres had repurposed, and which also got fell through the Caretaker's Array and wound up. And it's heading straight for this planet. And, you know, Janeway basically comes to these people and says, Hi, this thing we built is going to blow you up, but we're going to try and stop it. And and they put themselves on the line and are willing to basically put themselves in the path of the thing to save this planet. Um, One of the things I love about the Janeway character is that I've noticed this go around is that she has what her superpower is the ability to form a rapport with somebody. She's only just met in about three and a half seconds. Hmm. Um, You saw it with, in eye of the needle with uh, the Romulan that they, they communicated with through the wormhole. That was a great Um, episode. Yeah. And um, and you saw it in Dreadnought with that one character. You saw it in Crime Factors with the with the skeevy guy who ran the planet, um, and and Joel Gray's character when when um, the, the the crazy guy that that Janeway got stuck with because on the planet on that one planet um, the in Resistance. There, there's just so, so many occasions where you know she just has that. It comes back to the charisma. Yeah, you know, she has the ability to make friends with somebody instantly um, and bond with and find a way to bond with them. And uh, and it's a really great feature of the character,
2: right? I wish I had that feature. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm just not. I'm not built that way. I find it a bit more difficult, and I can make friends with people. And but it's uh takes a little bit more effort on my part than it does. Uh, it seems like for Janeway, at least. But but yeah. Well, I go ahead, Dave.
3: Now the the only other and complaining about the Paris character, you get a guy who was a criminal, comes onto the ship, gets promoted, gets demoted, gets promoted again, but why can't Harry Kim get a damn promotion? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All the 46 people killed and you can't give Harry a poor lieutenant billet. Come on.
0: And how many times did Harry get killed?
3: I think only three uh, times.
0: Yeah, oh, only three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
3: see guy earned it, man. Come on.
0: Yeah.
1: And 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 one of the times he was replaced by his duplicate, so he doesn't really remember it. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Tried not, but and the not other time not, was taped out by time travel shenanigans. He really only remembers one of them, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Wow. But, well, so. But uh, yeah. The, go ahead. Although
1: I did love, I did love. Um, Tuvok's promotion. I'd forgotten about his promotion ceremony to lieutenant commander. Right. Um, where, right, which consisted basically of everybody telling embarrassing stories about him in the mess hall. At which point he said, "If I had known this was going to be part of it, I wouldn't have accepted the promotion." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, was that
3: trying to remember where that fell in the timeline? Was that more of a uh, an "I'm sorry" promotion for killing tuvix or that, I mean, it did was,
1: that happened before that. Oh, that was that was long after. Two that was uh, Tuvix was late second season. (laughs) This was early fourth season. Um, Tuvix was a perfect example of what I was talking about about how doing a show where there should have been consequences and there weren't. Right, Um, Right. That 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 episode should have ended like twenty minutes after it ended, Um, because we had no idea how Tuvok and Neelix felt about this, and the next time we saw them together, it never came up, which was ridiculous. Right. Um. And and made me crazy. That that. I I was expecting when I started doing my rewatch that Tuvix would get the most comments out of any episode, and I was right. Uh, (laughs) Uh, It is one one of my favorite memes. It it, uh, it's 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 got by far the most comments out of any episode so far, Um, and 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 it's people you know arguing over whether Janeway made the right decision or not, and it's a really tough one, and it's especially frustrating because. We know what Janeway had to go through to make that decision, and what happened to Tuvix. We don't know how Tuvok and Neelix were affected by it, and that's so important, you know. And and we knew there wouldn't be consequent. There wouldn't be anything mentioned about it afterward, which made it all the more important reason why we should have seen it there. Yeah, you know, and, that, and their that's relationship really affected both of them. It was two weeks.
3: Yeah, and <laughs> their relationship to begin was always humorous to me, anyway. Yeah, between them, and and the fact that it never really there was never that pivot moment that you're right that pivot point in that relationship that you could see it it, it was almost it was almost very kind of almost cork and odo-ish the way their relationship grew right. and 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 to, especially to the end but yeah there, there again there was no no consequence to it and that was yeah, just so sure. disappointing right
0: yeah keith uh- did I re- did I hear you correctly? I think it was one of the last conventions. You said you really enjoyed uh, writing for the doctor. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. No, writing for the EMH is just is fantastic. He's he's. Um, I wrote him in uh, articles of the Federation, and a couple three other places. Um, yeah, no, he's he's he's. An ad- you know, snarky characters are always fun to write anyway, um, and uh, and so it's. Yeah, he's because he's so brilliant and so snotty, um, and and so completely not self-aware. <laughs> uh, he's, and he always, you know, he often gets the best lines, you know. Um, and some of the best episodes are ones that that focus on him, right? Um, and or that gave him at least a, a great deal to do. Um, I mean, one of my favorite episodes is Living Witness. Um, yes, yeah. and uh, I also got to write. Uh, uh, the evil version of Lewis Zimmerman, which was fun. I did a, a Voyager Mirror <laughs> Universe story, um, and the premise was that Kes and Neelix wind up in the Alpha Quadrant and are found by um, a group of from the Terran Rebellion led by Chakotay, which sort of, you know, it's Chakotay, um, Tuvok, um, uh, Catherine J- K- Kate Janeway, and, and Annika Hansen are all together, and, and Seska, um, are all part of the Terran Rebellion. Uh, Seska is a, is a defector from the Cardassian-Klingon alliance who's helping the rebellion. And um, and then B'Elanna is actually works for the alliance running a scientific think tank, which Louis Zimmerman is one of the scientists at. Wow. And, uh, and that was fun because it's, it's basically the same Louis Zimmerman that we saw On DS9 and in Dr. Bashir, I presume, and and in uh, a couple, three times on Voyager with the snottiness like turned up to 11 because he's not (laughs) not snotty, he's evil because it's the mirror universe. Right, right. Right. But yeah, Picardo did such a good job with that character. And and it's I I regretted I was really disappointed that we never really got to see the EMH interact with Q. When he was on the show because that would have been just been epic
2: that would have been epic.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh yeah, yeah. snarkiness overload
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely yeah well you oh, know yeah. we're encroaching a little over an hour here and i don't want to drag this out too long but i did want to i we could talk about this probably for another hour and dissect the show and the, its impact um i did have one question though before we move on and, and that is Many times when you bring a new show, like a new incarnation, like uh, when Next Gen came on, it had upped the ante as far as, I mean, effects had developed so far during that time. And D Space Nine certainly gave a new look to the show. Um, Voyager comes on. Uh, how did Voyager change the look and feel of Star Trek um, in regards, I mean, after especially next-gen D Space Nine, which were probably the more recent shows?
1: Mostly in terms of the use of CGI. Um, Voyager was one of the first shows to create CGI beings, basically, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, on television specifically. Um, they started in macrocosm with the macroviruses, <laughs> and that led them to doing Species uh, 8472. 8472 is probably, I think, one of the first times we saw an entire alien species that was created entirely via CGI. And looking at it, you know, 25 years later, it looks a little cheesy, but it actually doesn't look that bad either. Mm. Um, it still pretty much works. Um, and and, it, and it, it freed them to create more aggressively alien aliens. You know, 8472 looks way more alien than, you know, a guy in a rubber suit. Um, and, uh, and I think that was one of the things, because it was, it was one of the first shows to really start using... CGI that way, you know. Um you'd already seen, you know, morphing technology that, that after James Cameron more or less pioneered that in Terminator two, DS9 was using it with Odo and with the other changelings and such. Um but the uh but the specific idea of creating completely CGI characters, Voyager was the first Star Trek show certainly to do that, hmm. and one of the first T V shows generally too. And I think that that's one of its biggest contributions.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that, Dave Lyles? <laughs>
0: I thought the battle scenes you know, we would see with the Borg and other races, I, I thought they continued to look better than, than compared to maybe its next-gen cousin um, because it was CGI. I mean, it, it was almost movie quality with was, was some of the things they were doing towards the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Voyager had certainly one of the most effective teasers ever in Scorpion, where you've got, you know, the two Borg ships and they're doing their whole you will be assimilated routine. And it's interrupted mid-sentence by them being blown <laughs> was, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. An
0: incredibly effective teaser.
2: Right. Definitely. And seeing, well. Go
0: ahead. And seeing several Borg vessels run like hell and yes. chased yeah. by 8472. I mean, that, that was a. An, an, Never seen before the Borg ships running away. It was, uh, yeah, it was a sight to behold.
3: Yeah. yeah, I'm still not sure if that ranks as a disappointment for me or not. The <laughs> way they ended up treating the Borg through that series. I mean, w- when you got, you know, w- with next gen and you got the the whole to see the the power and the terror of this bad guy to be sidestepped and walked on and, and walked around through Voyager. Yeah. I, it, it, to me, it, it
1: took a little something away from that. I think if we hadn't seen them again after Scorpion, it would have been more effective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the idea they like Kess threw them 10,000 light years away and then, okay, we left the Borg behind that. That would have worked yeah. better. Right. And, and I like the way Picard has been dealing with the Borg in terms of basically people who have people like you and seven of nine and each who have been Removed from the collective and, and what effect it has on them. Right. I think that's been a much better use of the Borg than having them be oh, yeah. you know, come back again because the Borg aren't that interesting once you get past the initial force of nature aspect of it Right. Yeah. You know, and you it, villain recurring villains work better if they have a personality. You know, right. and you can you can do the Borg a couple three times as force of nature. One of the reasons why they created the Borg Queen was to put a face on them. Right. Um. But yeah, you you really did, especially with the way Voyager kept going back to them. You really started getting diminishing returns.
2: Right, right, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Having now, said visually, that, the Scorpion two-parter was great. I yeah. thought that oh, yeah. was very effective, and it gave us Seven of Nine, who was a great character. Um, but it, although <laughs> the only character in the history of television whose character was undermined by her costume choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that could have been something they built to over the course of half a season, you know. Yeah. But fifteen year old me would disagree, but yeah. I, I am mean, should sure fifteen
3: year olds were right there with you. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean visually though, the way I mean the way they they outfitted the Borg, the, the interiors of the sh- of the Borg ships and stuff like that were were really really well done. Yes. Really enjoy the Well back. they also
1: they they basically just crib to the first contact. That's, it. That's I was going to yeah. say, didn't they just yeah. do yeah. that it in was the pretty costume? Yeah, yeah. First Contact did all the heavy lifting and, and had the budget to, to do yeah. that, and they, just, you know,
0: they provided the startup. Star
1: Trek has always been good at reusing stuff they've already built. Oh, yeah, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're well, very. They're very. Yeah, when I mean, you have to. Yeah, when you're working on a, when you're working on a, the tightness of a TV schedule, and even even an expensive TV show still has a limited budget up to you know you only about certain amount you could do right and and i've noticed in particular that voyager was really good about trying to do as many bottle episodes as they could so they could blow the budget on something big right. somewhere else in the season right you know there, there are a lot of shows that have minimal guest stars yeah. um and they take place entirely on the ship yeah um which which you do you do that to save money so that you can then you know do something like futures end or do scorpion or 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 year of hell right you know where you where you just blow the budget entirely on on guest stars and effects and, and, and blowing, blowing crap up,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: which we always appreciate. Always appreciate. Miles blowing crap up. Yeah. Well, miles, you mentioned you, you haven't wanted the trivia that, that Voyager reused the intermix from Yeah, the
0: warp core from, um, Star Trek motion picture. That's, 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 that's the warp core from that movie. Mm. Yep. Um, I, I, I I even noticed that when I first saw it, like, I, I've seen that before. Yeah. 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 They, they got it out of the storage. That was, that was, was using the motion picture. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah. Well, is there anything else uh, you, you folks want to talk about regarding this pilot episode as we uh, begin to look at wrapping up the show here?
0: I thought it was a very enjoyable pilot. Yeah. Um, I did enjoy Voyager over the seven-year run, despite some of its flaws. Um, if you want to hear a good podcast, uh, Robbie Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong are doing their doing a podcast. Um, they play Paris and, and uh, Harry Kim, and getting their perspective of uh, of the show. They're in season two, and even uh, Robbie Duncan McNeil agrees that uh, uh, Paris was a pig.
2: right right (laughs) Right. and what's the name of that podcast
0: uh the delta flyers the delta Flyers. if you want to check out it you know get from their perspective which is uh, i'm enjoying i've been meaning to sit down and listen to that um
1: because yeah that 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 looks from all accounts it looks like tremendous one
0: yeah it's enjoyable yeah
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i do want to mention one other cringy thing from the pilot that was um sort of not the producer's fault entirely but was really the 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 guy they hired to be their consultant on native uh, stuff was a fraud. Um, oh. It was a guy who went by the name of Jamicky Highwater, but whose real name was Jackie Marks, a Jewish dude from Los Angeles, who <laughs> pretended to be native, um, and he, he'd been scamming people for decades. Um, he, he. There was an expose published on him in the late '80s. Either the Voyager. Producers didn't read that article or didn't believe it because they went and hired him anyway. After he died in, I think, 2001, he was fully exposed as a total fraud. Um, and if you if you actually like do a little research, pretty much everything they did with Chakotay was nonsense. Um, it wasn't based on any actual tribe. The language he was speaking was was bullshit that, that, that Jackie Marks made up. Um, and it's really unfortunate because the character of Chakotay deserved better. Um, mm-hmm. Dave, you mentioned that that you know you were impressed with some of the characters that you hadn't been impressed with the first time. One of the things that's been impressing me watching, especially the first three three and a bit seasons, is Robert Beltran. He's really good when he's given good material to work. With. Yeah, um, and he had yeah, some excellent material to work.
3: With. Yeah, and, and that oh, was yeah. one of my biggest problem with him was his it, it, character always felt very bland to me. It, considering I just came off of Riker and, and Kira Nerys. And now I got you know this guy here, and I'm like, come on.
1: But, but when they gave it, him stuff on. to do, he did it really well. Yeah, you know. But they just they kept not giving him stuff to do, and that got worse. You know, one seven of nine showed up, um, and she <laughs> got much more of a spotlight, and more or less became you know Janeway's second in command in all, but title. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but 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 the, but the biggest problem is you know like I said they they so much of the the cultural stuff that they wanted, that they tried to do with him, which, which was incredibly ham fisted anyway. Um, you know, it was, it was part, this was happening a lot in the nineties. People were overcorrecting for years of portraying indigenous people, like not too bright five-year-olds. Um, so instead they portrayed them as these incredibly noble people who were one with the land and all this other new agey gobbledygook, which at least came from a better place, but was just as patronizing. Um, right and 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 unfortunately Voyager was was part of that wave uh, that was happening um, I really hope that one of the upcoming uh, secret hideout shows whether it's it's on this season of Discovery or in Strange New Worlds or in the next season of Picard has an indigenous character who actually you know where they where they're they're consultant on the same actually knows what they're talking about
2: right um, right very good. Well, I think that about, that about does it here. Uh, that's been a good discussion talking about Voyager and revisiting this pilot episode, thinking about its impact, the things we liked, the things that bothered us. And uh, Keith, we are incredibly grateful that you joined us tonight to give your two cents on Voyager, especially since you're doing the Voyager Rewatch for tour.com
1: it's fresh in my
2: head it is it is and sure <laughs> every,
1: every, every every Monday and Thursday on tourcom right. uh, there's a new one so,
2: yeah and, and can you remind been, uh, uh, can, it's, you, it's, can, you, can you remind listeners once again where again they can find you and find out more about your work and other things that you are involved with
1: uh, best is to go to de my spectacularly primitive website that will be updated someday but right now it looks like it was Created by some schmuck who learned HTML in the 1990s, because it was created by some schmuck who learned HTML in the <laughs> 1990s. Um, but it will link you to my blog, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, my Instagram, uh, my Wikipedia page, for that matter, uh, my articles on Tor.com. Uh, also, my reading—I uh, forgot—channel. Uh, I've been doing readings of my short fiction. Um, including, including the Voyager story that I mentioned before uh, about the people left back home. I do a reading of that and a bunch of my other Star Trek fiction as well, and all my other short fiction. I've, I've got over seventy-five uh, different stories up that I've that I've done read- dramatic readings of on YouTube. It's called Crad COVID Readings.
2: Crad um, COVID. I started it
1: when the lockdown started in the spring, and uh, and I've been doing doing them uh, pretty regularly. So you should check yeah. those out and hear me yeah. read my
2: yeah well if you think about it and you want to drop the link to the Voyager story we'll put it on there we'll put it on the post when we publish this so <laughs> yep thank, that's great well thank you again for joining us and I think that about does it we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up the show unless either of you folks have anything else to say are we good? I think we covered it yeah so our next Star Trek will be what? are we going back to we, Enterprise?
0: yep we'll, we'll be reviewing Enterprise uh, Broken Bow Parts 1 and 2 Very good.
2: Awesome. Probably about a month from now is when we'll be doing that toward the end of November because we do them about once a month. And so be in the lookout for that. All right. Well, I believe that about does it. So Miles, why don't you take us out of the show?
0: All right. Till next time, good night and good luck.
2: See ya. Hey,
0: go
3: boldly.